Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I saw our uh, our former colleague. It's funny to call her that. Hillary Clinton last night, our former boss, colleague, opponent. I mean, really good person. Wasn't my boss, but uh, you know, was a superior. How about that? Was a, yeah, it was uh, funny, uh, right? Our like superior. She, yeah, she certainly outranked us. Yeah, we yeah, never yeah, worked yeah, directly yeah, for her. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she was at our Pots of America show in uh, New York last night. Love it, and I tried to bait her into a lock him up chant, but it, it sadly it didn't work. Probably what a idea. surprise uh, <laughs> that Lovett couldn't land that plane. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you will like it, though. I I, um, I asked her about a conversation she had with Vladimir Putin about the horrors that his father lived through during World War II and the siege of Stalingrad, which people don't know, you know, like millions of people died in this battle in World War II and how that impacted uh, Putin's psychology. And it was uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot that is informing Putin's psychology today. And uh, Bakhmut is like a mini, mini, mini Stalingrad, right? Uh, just a just gruesome, grinded out urban warfare. And uh, Okay. This is know. how much we have a little mind meld on this yeah. show because that was exactly what I said. You know, we're going to play a clip so that people can hear a piece of it. Uh, and we'll play the full thing. It's on Pod Save America if you want to hear it. He goes over. He starts trying to pull this body out of the pile of bodies and the body collector is screaming at him, stop it, stop it, you know, get away from there. And he says, no, no, that's my wife. That's my wife. I know it's my wife. And he keeps trying to pull her out. And finally, the body collector said, well, just take her, take her body, but then you have to return it. You have to get rid of the body. So he took her and she was alive. And he took her back to their apartment and nursed her back to health. And then a few years later, Vladimir Putin was born. So he tells me this story, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this explains so much. Uh, <laughs> think about this story, and think about the trauma that his family and so many Russian families went through. And in some people, that kind of trauma makes them feel like n never again, no war, we have to be more compassionate and caring, we have to help people. And in some people, it makes them think, I'm going to be on the side that wins. So Ben, what you were just saying was exactly my question, which is, you know, th this is a story about her dad coming sort of back from the front uh, of the siege, seeing his wife in this situation that she des described here. And I asked her, like, how do you make sense of a guy whose family lived through that experience? And then he sends his own people into a, a very similar meat grinder in a place like Bakhmut, where you know young Russian soldiers are just dying at horrific rates, uh, and this was part of that conversation. Yeah, that's um, that's a very um, powerful story and very like insightful <laughs> um, armchair psychology there uh, by Secretary Clinton. I mean, really interesting because if you consider okay that happened you know, uh, in Stalingrad, like the most horrific battlefield of the 20th century. Then Putin is kind of born in St. Petersburg, mm -hmm. um, which undergoes this gruesome siege during the war. You know, people don't have enough to eat. People are dying of malnutrition. That's kind of where, that's what Vladimir Putin comes from, you know. Um, and then he has the trauma of, you know, as we've talked about, packing up the KGB office in East Germany at the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's a lot of anger um, and kind of rage uh, that informs the psychology of Vladimir Putin. And um, it doesn't start, you know, 
it's funny, like these debates about the war and its origins in Ukraine, sometimes they start at like the Maidan, uh, the protest movement in Ukraine. Sometimes they start with like NATO enlargement. Uh, yeah. you know, sometimes they start with like the, you know, the Iraq war or something or Chechen war. But like, actually, she's right. You start all the way at the beginning and yeah. and it probably makes more sense. You got to know who this guy is, know yeah. his family is, know his background. Uh, super interesting story and longer conversation with Hillary Clinton about the indictment, how to run against Trump, uh, lots of stuff. So check that out. Um, so, Ben, I know we say this a lot. But this might be the craziest news week ever yeah, for yeah, just like yeah. Pop Day of the World purposes. Yeah, yeah, like if yeah. we had an enemies list, we'd be checking them off. Yeah, man. Left, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, don't we don't cross have us. one. Don't we cross don't us. have one. That's we don't the, have one. The message. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to cover the Trump indictment. There's reports of a, a Chinese spy base in Cuba. I'm sure you'll have thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, the latest from Ukraine, food aid in Ethiopia, how the conflict in Sudan is really spiraling out of control in a scary way, how cryptocurrency is fueling North Korea's ballistic missile program. Uh, former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi is dead, uh, and then some news out of Iran and Senegal. And then Ben, you just talked with uh, you know a Pod Save the World fan favorite, the Right Honorable David Lammy, Labor MP. Uh, I'm guessing maybe Boris Johnson came up. What'd you guys talk about? Yeah, you know he's very right and honorable today. Um, we talked about Boris Johnson's uh, resignation, very dramatic, bombastic resignation from Parliament. Uh, after he was going to be found by a parliamentary committee as having lied, which we all knew. Um, and the kind of chaos he's trying to, you know, there's some allies of his that are resigning the Tory party. What does that mean for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Tories? What does it mean for Labour as they get ready to go to an election year? We talk about the arrest of Nicola Sturgeon, <laughs> the, uh, the world guest. former guest of Pots of the World and uh, leader of the Scottish National Party until recently. Um, you know, interestingly, like, SMP is a left of center on a lot of things, but they're obviously a competitor to the Labor Party. So that big time also helps. If Labor, Labor can Party. win back those Scotland seats and defeat the uh, weakened Tory Party. Like they're going to be on a roll. That's what David said, basically, to give it a bit of a preview. Um, and then we just talked a bit about how the Trump indictment looks from the perspective of of London. And you know, I think you can hear in David's answer, like. You know, obviously he is very supportive of the rule of law and the checks and balances on display in the U.S. system. But like, you know, people in other countries don't know that Trump's not going to be president again, too. And that's a very strange thing to realize when um, when Trump is, as we speak, in the, presenting himself in a Miami courthouse. So it's a good interview. People should check it out. Excellent. I uh, always love hearing from David Lammy. I also cannot wait to listen to Podse of the UK this week because uh, I imagine those guys, uh, Nish and Coco, have been on like a three-day bye-bye Boris Bender. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was very fun. But so, Ben, let's start with Trump uh, and the Mar-a-Lago documents. We finally have an indictment in the Mar-a-Lago uh, documents hoarding case. It's a doozy. He is charged with 37 criminal counts. 31 of them are related to the willful retention of national defense information. There's five counts of obstruction of justice and two counts of making false statements to the FBI. Trump is being arraigned as we speak uh, on June 13th. Here's a sampling of some of the documents that led to charges against him. Uh, This is a description by the government in the document. It's in the indictment. A document concerning military capabilities of a foreign country and the United States. Uh, that one is classified top secret slash SI slash no foreign slash FISA. means it was gathered via the information was gathered via signals intelligence in some sort of collection on a U.S. person that was authorized by a FISA court. There's a document concerning nuclear weaponry of the United States. 
Uh, it was classified secret slash formerly restricted data, which is a category of data related to the military utilization of atomic weapons. There was a document dated June 2020 concerning nuclear capabilities of a foreign country. The classification uh, marking on that was top secret slash redacted slash redacted slash orcon slash no foreign. Ben, I've never seen a classification demarcation redacted before, uh, but ORCON means the agency that collected the data controls its dissemination. No foreign means you can't give it to non-US citizens. Then there was something about military activity in a foreign country that was top secret slash HCS-P, a bunch of other acronyms that I won't get into, but HCS-P means information that came from human intelligence, CIA assets, CIA spies around the world. So we're going to leave it to the the legal analysts out there to uh, tell us if he's guilty or not. You know, Strict Scrutiny is going to record uh, an emergency episode about this. But a couple things that jumped out at me, Ben, from a national security perspective. First, as we expected, um, the documents Trump took were not like memos from his staff. They were intelligence community and Pentagon documents, the most sensitive ones possible. Two, uh, DOJ has not said that they know for sure that they've gotten all these documents back. And I think that's interesting and notable. And then, you know, third, despite reports that the special counsel's office uh, had subpoenaed records relating to Trump's business dealings, there's no mention of that in this indictment. Doesn't mean that those connections uh, don't exist necessarily or will never be drawn. But, you know, you, you have to assume that if Jack Smith had solid evidence that he had sold these documents or give them to a foreign national, that would be in this indictment, which just sort of gets to the last point, which is it's a very unsatisfying thought that we might never know. We probably will never know whether any of these documents were fell into the wrong hands. I'm sure the Intel community is doing a damage assessment as we speak, but like that won't necessarily be conclusive. So very bad. Uh, give, me your, give me your hottest takes on this thing. What, what have you been thinking about since you read it? I mean, first of all, the... When this first broke, right, there was a spectrum of what these documents could be. The most benign end of that spectrum, as we said, was like, you know, the letters with Kim Jong-un or some call transcripts with foreign leaders that bring back good memories. Um, th then the next, you know, rung of the spectrum would essentially be like the intelligence reports that you and I used to read, right, like that are kind of like 10, 15 page analytical summaries of some issue in the world that they're really interesting. Maybe they have some kind of cool insight or anecdote. Yeah, or the stuff on Discord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The stuff that, exactly. The stuff that we're- The stuff like, that's all over yeah, the internet. The stuff that we're reading on Discord. Exactly. What What is really shocking to me about this is he's at the far end of the spectrum in terms of the most damaging possible documents in that- they're the documents that have the most cost associated with them in terms of U.S. national security and the documents that are like least possible to say they're like, you know, they're dealing with something in the past, you know, so, you know, maybe they could have shown something about collection. Like to, to home in on one, for instance, it's, it's been reported widely that one of these documents is like the U.S. war plan to attack Iran, right, mm -hmm. and to attack its nuclear program. Like there is no way in which that document could possibly not be incredibly sensitive because it's about something in the future. You know, it's not even like an analytical assessment of something that happened already. It's right. about plans for things that would have to happen in the future. And if you looked at that document, and and I've looked at you know similar documents over the years, like you could look at it and you could not only understand like what do we want to strike or what do we understand about the Iranian nuclear program and you know where we might want to target, but also you can kind of surmise from that. 
where would the U.S. position military assets to carry mm-hmm. out an attack? Would we need yeah. cooperation from other countries in terms of positioning resources or airspace permissions and things like that? I mean, this is something that if it's out in the open, like the Pentagon has to like revise <laughs> its its plan around this. And to be clear, like I hope we never have to use that plan, but like it is incredibly sensitive, right? Yeah. And um, just to clarify, like people might be thinking, why the hell was the Pentagon drawing up war plans with Iran? Because that's their job. The chairman oh, yeah. of the Joint Chiefs Office, they have they have plans for everything. That's what they do. And, and to your point, Ben, Trump claiming that he declassified the thing. I mean, someone should probably have told the Pentagon that because now they have to write up a new war plan if that were to be true. I mean, it just like exposes how ludicrous these arguments are. And that's my point is like you literally can't really declassify that, you know, because no. if, if it was a document about something that already happened, uh, uh, okay, you have to do a damage assessment. You have to say, would the revelation of this document allow someone to figure out, you know, that we were listening in on certain conversations or we had a spy somewhere? This is about something that hasn't happened, right? So so that jumped out to me. The fact that this does include documents that rely on human sources demonstrates that like the revelation of these documents or they get in the wrong hands, that that could, that could literally put someone's life in danger. That is not an overstatement, you know, um, because that's the nature of human intelligence. That's the nature of spying. Uh, and, and the things that jumped out to me, like the, the hot takes I, I would add to this initial conversation Again, we know from reporting that, like, there's this recording of him talking to, like, Mark Meadows biographers about, like, you know, presumably... About the, the Iran war plan. The Iran war plan, right? So he's taking yeah. out this document. He's like, you know, I, I shouldn't be showing this to you. I didn't declassify But what really jumped out to me about that is if he's showing this document to the Mark Meadows biographers... Like, who the fuck else did he show that document to? You know, Imagine like, what he's showing the caterers. Yeah, that's not the only people, you know, and I know this goes beyond what- Just showing could, off. You know, yeah. Jack Smith can only focus on what he knows, and if he has a recording, then he knows that. But to your point of what we don't know, we have no idea who the hell he was showing this to for the last couple of years, you know, um, and all these documents. Uh, we, we, we know from the kind of photos that were released that these documents were like- they were in ballrooms. They were kind of like hanging out around Mar-a-Lago. These weren't even in like a locked closet. Like th- this is the kind of stuff that, again, Mar-a-Lago has been likely the number one intelligence target in the entire world. Hold on, uh, Ben. That's unfair. Republican Congressman Byron Donalds pointed out that there's 33 bathrooms at Mar-a-Lago. So don't act like it's a random bathroom that guests can just go into. That's an exact quote. And Kevin McCarthy pointed out that bathrooms can lock, unlike Joe Biden's garage, although he seems to have, I don't know, maybe not been inside a bathroom recently and, and realized that they lock from the inside usually. Well, and Joe Biden- out of bathrooms yeah, from the inside. Yeah. And, and Joe Biden's not exactly having like weddings and, and, and parties and fundraisers and you know, bar mitzvahs. <laughs> Thousands and, of yeah. people. Yeah, it's yeah, a country yeah. club. I mean, again, like people have to occupy this reality because they hear people say oh, national security. Well, you know, that's hyperbolic. The Chinese and Russians, there's no question in, in, in anybody's mind that they've been trying to get into Mar-a-Lago since 2016, if not before. And if you think they're not good enough to figure out how to get someone into a wedding or get someone into a party. And, you or know, a job get, as a caterer. Yeah, job as a caterer. Like, you haven't clearly watched enough spy movies because they've definitely been trying to do that. So to me, the main takeaways are this is the most sensitive possible documents you could have taken. There's real and, 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 and significant risk that these documents are compromised. And yeah, we still don't know the motivation. Hopefully that comes out in the course of the trial. It may be that Jack Smith has a couple of things up his sleeve. Um, but this is real. And like 
people looking at this around the world, in addition to just thinking, how on earth is this guy still like a front runner for the Republican nomination? Like genuinely should be asking themselves, and I'm sure are, do I want to cooperate with the United States? Like, do I do I want to spy for the United States? Do I want to share my intel with the United States if it's going to end up in like the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, box next to a toilet. Uh, yeah, we we have not heard anything this indictment about the possible uh, giving these documents to foreign governments. That doesn't mean that the uh, kickbacks from these foreign governments haven't come in. Don't take our word for it. Let's hear Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie talking about the Trump family and the money they've made in the past few years. Let me tell you something, everybody. The grift from this family is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. Jared Kushner and Ivanka Kushner walk out of the White House and months later get $2 billion from the Saudis. $2 billion from the Saudis. You think it's because he's some kind of investing genius? Or do you think it's because he was sitting next to the President of the United States for four years doing favors for the Saudis? That's your money. That's your money he stole. And gave it to his family. Hey, Chris, that makes us shut the fuck up, Christy. <laughs> let's, let's cut him off. That's what makes <laughs> That's that's my line. He's still my line. I, I, Christy, the thing about investment genius, I, I think I've used that like five I, I, times. I was going to say, Chris, don't forget to rate and review the episodes. Yeah, yeah. It helps people find us in the iTunes store. We really appreciate it. Oh. I like seeing him out there. Listen, I don't like Chris Christie. You don't have to like him either. But a whole bunch of us might be giving that guy $1 so he ends up on the debate stage. And just get yourself okay with that. It also makes you wonder, like, some Democrats have gone there. But, like, why Why hasn't every Democrat in Congress been saying exactly that for the last couple of years? You know, like, it just, every now so and then easy. you see a Republican, like, you know, do the, 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 the gut punch. And you're like, man, I wish we had, you know... <laughs> gut punchers like that. Um, but yeah, he's raising the right questions. And, and to connect it to the documents thing, Tommy, like we know that Trump was hosting like live, you know, golf tour events and different, you know, Bedminster, I think had one like y- y- you honestly think that bunch, he just yeah. off the old Iran war plan for the Mark Meadows biographer. And he doesn't, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't think like, oh, I got some Saudis coming for the live tour. Maybe I'll uh, dust that bad boy off and throw it in my briefcase and take it up to Bedminster for the day. Like, I mean, this is a real issue, real concern that like, what has he been sharing with the Saudis? Yeah. hundred percent chance he, he has done it in my opinion. Uh, okay, Ben. So speaking of spying uh, over the weekend, the Biden administration disclosed the existence of a now no longer secret uh, Chinese eavesdropping base in Cuba. This news came out in sort of a weird way. Last week, the Wall Street Journal reported that China and Cuba had reached some sort of secret deal where the Chinese government would pay the Cubans billions of dollars for permission to establish a base on the island of Cuba. The White House initially said, no, the story is inaccurate. But it turns out what was inaccurate about the Wall Street Journal story was the suggestion that this base was new, when in fact it had been set up in 2019 and maybe it had been like refurbished recently. I don't know. But, you know, first of all, it's a good window into why being a national security spokesperson is very complicated because, you know, the White House reads this story. They know parts of it are wrong, but you can't explain what's right and what's wrong until you get the intelligence community to declassify a bunch of information so you can put out the real facts, which they did, I think, on Saturday. But Ben, um, Biden's team clearly wanted everyone to know that this base was set up during the Trump administration, that they got briefed on it during the transition. And I think Politico was suggested that 
Uh, maybe they wanted to avoid, you know, sort of a Chinese spy balloon style blow up because Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is supposed to visit China next week. Um, more recently, we learned about China's attempts to build a military base in the UAE. But Ben, I mean, what do you make of these reports and the sort of broader sense of the Cuba-China relationship? Is that is that longstanding? Does this sound new to you? Like, what was your take? Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's longstanding, but... <laughs> My take is 2019 is a very notable year, okay? Because we have the opening to Cuba. And what that, that's doing is that, that is providing, like, you know, an infusion of additional resources to Cubans, right? Because more Americans yep. are traveling down there. Um, there's kind of a tourism industry that is building out. There are these small businesses, a, a Cuban private sector of people that own restaurants and, you know, drive taxis and things like that. Trump comes in. And he rolls back a big piece of that opening in 2017. But then uh, Marco Rubio and all these guys like convince him to go further and further and further and sanction and sanction and sanction through 2018. And so lo and behold, 2019, the Cubans take the step because they have nowhere else to go. Yeah, right. Like we basically delivered too. Cuba into the arms of the Chinese. The timing is incredibly revelatory because that is precisely when Trump went to a maximalist sanctions policy. And if you are a small island state that has been in a conflict with the United States that bets on a different approach of opening up to the United States and then gets the door slammed in your face such that suddenly you have a humanitarian crisis in your country. Um, suddenly, like you've got an out, like an outflow of people um, to the U.S. border, like you have nowhere to turn but to China and Russia. And so we've talked about the insanity of U.S. Cuba policy because it hurts Cuban people. We've talked about the insanity of U.S. Cuba policy because it is driving a migration crisis to our border. But the geopolitics of it are actually even dumber. Because we're basically saying, hey, there's this island 90 miles from uh, Florida. Because of our politics with Bob Menendez and some people in Florida, we're going to have a total sanctions wall around this country such that not only can they not get U.S. investment, but they can't get any investment from Europe either. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to turn to the only option they have, which is China and Russia. So the U.S., the United States government is, is kind of a like a co-investor in that base, you know, like, because <laughs> we gave the Cubans no nowhere else to go. It's yeah, we got some equity just, in that base. It's yeah, it's absolute insanity, and it just shows you how stupid this policy is. Part of why I found Hillary Clinton's story about Vladimir Putin's father so interesting is that the heart of diplomacy is trying to have empathy for your adversaries and your friends, right? And sort of like see the world from their perspective. So Vladimir Putin thinks. You know, the Nazis would have slaughtered us all if we didn't fucking take the fight to them, right? To your point, the Cubans, <laughs> the, the Cubans couldn't hold their May Day parade this year because the island had run out of gasoline. That's yeah. how desperate they are. This yeah. comes after COVID, after U.S. sanctions. So I'm not defending the decision to set up a Chinese spy base, but of course, that's the kind of place you would turn for an infusion of capital. No, in, in my experience, right? So I like, I negotiated with the Cubans over many years. I spent hundreds, probably thousands of hours with senior members of the Cuban government up to Raul Castro, who was then the president of Cuba. 
And what was very clear to me is that there were divisions inside of that system, right? So you had some people that were more pragmatic who were thinking, you know, there's there's still guys that we don't agree with. There's still autocrats, but they're thinking like, you know what? Like we need to diversify. We should open up to the US. We should open up to Western investment. It's a better bet for us in the long run. If it Mm -hmm. means we have to tolerate uh, like the internet coming online in Cuba, tolerate people coming here with different political ideas, uh, we're willing to take that risk. I knew at the time that there were hardliners in the Cuban system that did not like the opening. The, the kind of really retro guys uh, in the Cuban military and, and uh, other aspects of the Cuban system that didn't like the opening. And they, Fidel Castro himself criticized the opening. He was clearly in a different place even from his brother. And what happened is when Trump slammed the door in their face, it dramatically undercut all the people that had participated in, negotiated, and supported that opening of the United States. And the hardliners came in and said, you were wrong. We should just throw our lot in with the Chinese and Russians. It's the only way that we can get any resources. And look, the check that they get from the Chinese for that base is not the kind of sustained revenue that would come from travel from Americans, who, by the way, want to go to Cuba. But yeah, it doesn't make them right, but it makes them rational, self-interested actors (laughs) that if the United States government is not going to give them any capacity to do any business with anybody that is one of our friends and allies, they're just going to be left with Russia, China. The same thing has happened in Venezuela, where Russia and China have an enormous influence. So you know what? Like the Biden administration can't say out of one side of its mouth, we're running a strategy to try to you know, prevent Russian and Chinese influence in this hemisphere. And the other hand, set up a bunch of policies that give countries in this hemisphere no choice but to deal with Russia and China. It's it's insanity. That's a really good point. Uh, speaking of Russia, Ben, so lots of news out of Ukraine this week. The long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive has officially begun. Zelensky has confirmed as much. The reporting so far seems to suggest that the Ukrainian military is probing the Russian lines in a whole bunch of places before deciding where to sort of go all in with these newly trained, newly armed uh, units. There has been some limited success so far. They've retaken some small villages, but uh, things have been complicated by rainstorms and mud that make it hard to move heavy equipment. Rain or shine, though, this is going to be a very difficult, long process getting through these Russian minefields and fortifications. So expect this to take months before we, I think, have a verdict on whether it's worked or not. Uh, Last week, we mentioned this sabotage of the uh, Kakovka Dam in eastern Ukraine, which is holding back a body water the size of the Great Salt Lake in Utah, which is now pouring into the ocean. Seems clear now that the dam was blown up probably from the inside by the Russians who were occupying it at the time. The floodwaters have displaced thousands of people. It's creating this ecological catastrophe that is being routinely described as the the Ukraine's worst environmental disaster since the Chernobyl nuclear meltdown. Think about that for a minute. Massive amounts of farmland is unusable. Landmines are washing down stream. Oil and gas, it's just a disaster. Uh, The Ukrainian government is, is in the UN are providing relief to those affected in Ukrainian occupied areas, but the Russians are doing nothing to help the people in the areas they control that are getting flooded out, despite being there to liberate them ostensibly. Uh, They won't even give the UN security guarantees so they can go in and help. Instead, the Russians are shooting at people, evacuating uh, the flooded parts of Ukraine. So that's, you know, tells you kind of who they are. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a surprise visit to Ukraine. Pledged some money. Joe Biden pledged another $325 million in aid. The leaders of France, Germany, and Poland got together in Paris to reaffirm their support. So lots of diplomatic activity happening. So, Ben, lots going on here. There is this big ongoing debate that I think has both military implications and political implications for Joe Biden and everybody else supporting this war about what success looks like. The New York Times tried to shorthand it in a piece, I think, over the weekend 
they talked about it being Ukraine retaking and holding important territory and brushing back the Russian military to the point where it kind of raises fundamental questions about their capacity. Failure would be we give Ukraine all this new equipment, all this new training, and it just has no impact militarily. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this expectations question, and it's been interesting to see that in the run-up to the offensive, the expectation setting was very maximalist. It was like victory, victory, victory. And then mm-hmm. as soon as it began, it's like, I think, a smart effort to lower expectations. I mean, in my mind, you know, it would seem like, and, and, and you see this in the reporting, that like, if they could break that land bridge, if they could take back pieces of southern Ukraine that separate Crimea from what Russia controls in eastern Ukraine, that that would be a very successful counteroffensive. But that's not easy at all, given that Russia has been able to dig in and fortify. It's harder to make progress the longer the Russians have had to prepare. The only other thing I'd put into this mix, uh, Tommy, after your good summary, is that, you know, there's been this question of, like, what would Russia do to escalate? Um, I think the dam explosion, presuming that was Russia, and it certainly seems that way, um, that's a pretty good indication that they are willing yeah. to do yeah. some shit that, as you Massive said- Massive war crime. Yeah. They, they, and no caring for even their own people. Like The only reason there was some question over who did this at first is that it hurt a lot of people in Russian-controlled areas. It hurt kind of a water resource for Crimea. Um, the fact that the Russians clearly just look at Ukraine as like a, like a map and, and could give a shit about any people there, including the people that, like you said, they claim to liberate the Russian-speaking populations- um, that's worrying to me because it is a sign that they're willing to escalate beyond just kind of uh, bombing war crimes to, you know, more, in this case, an ecological disaster. The nuclear question uh, is still out there. So it does suggest um, that, you know, there's there's places that Russia can go in, in defense of its own, the territory it's claimed that, that are quite escalatory. And, and Ukraine's going to be dealing with the after effects of this dam for a very long time. Yeah, for, for years and years and years. Um, and so I mentioned the, the politics of this and sort of like what it means for Joe Biden and sustaining political support. I just wanted to talk about two examples, one on the Democratic side and one on the Republican side of sort of where the policy conversation is shifting. Uh, the first is just a quick clip of now Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. talking about Ukraine. It's on Fox News. Worst of all, we've killed 350,000 Ukrainian kids in a, you know, in a, in a, uh, for a, a sham, something that, you know, we're, they are going and fighting, believing that they're fighting for their nation. But if you but look at not, the we're history. We're not doing that, right? That's the Russians doing that. Well, but, but, you know, what was our history of provocations? You know, you had George Cannon, who's our senior, the the most important diplomat in our country, in our history, uh, who designed the containment policy during the the, um, during the Cold War. Uh, Bill uh, uh, Myers was the uh, excuse me, President President uh, Clinton's Secretary of State, William Barry, who said both of them and the current CIA director, Bill Burns, have also all warned in advance, if you try to move NATO east to the Russian borders, it is going to force the Russians into a war with the United States. And then, you know, we, we spend $5 billion. And, you would, you, would just want to put, you would want to put an end to that. 
So I just want to be clear that we didn't choose that clip to like mock his voice in any way. He's got a, a rare disorder that impacts the muscle in his larynx. The issue we had was the substance of what he's saying there. Like RFK Jr. is blaming George Kennan, an American diplomat who was born in 1904 and died in 2005 for Putin's decision to invade in 2020. Y you and I have had a number of conversations. We had Peter Beinart on the show to talk about NATO expansion and how it made the Russians feel boxed in. It was maybe a, a bad idea at some points. But the idea that we, the U.S., forced Putin to invade Ukraine is fucking ludicrous. And this guy is polling at like 20%. Jack Dorsey, former Twitter CEO, is endorsing him. Elon Musk is, is you know, lifting him up on social media. Like, the debate is getting very weird on this stuff, Ben. No, there's a kind of zeitgeist out there that uh, RFK Jr. is in, which is like the, you know, uh, libertarian, anti-woke, you know, uh, anti-establishment. Uh, it's easy to kind of roll your eyes at it. But I think that you can miscalculate how profoundly there's a vein of public opinion on both the left and the right that just distrusts U.S. foreign policy, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it's all, po it's post-Iraq war chiefly. I mean, it's always been there, but I think and since Vietnam, the Iraq war, yeah. Vietnam, it's very pronounced. And I think that there are these assumptions about support for something like the war in Ukraine that are just really shallow because even at the height of support for Ukraine, even in the early days of the war, when there was this kind of outpouring and the media kind of reflected a, a sense of total support for Ukraine. You look at a poll and it was like you're hovering on 50% support. Like I, I just think people in the foreign policy establishment and the political establishment ignore at their peril. It's not to say he's not right. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's wrong to, to treat that as like some quack view. Because right. that's basically- Or that it's self-evident that it's a quack view. Because it probably sounds yeah. compelling to a lot of people. Yeah, it is. Like, well, why, you know, you should if, the, you know, we, someone expanded NATO's, uh, you know, foreign military alliances, you know, to, to Mexico, what would we do? Like, right. there are all kinds of ways of framing it. The bottom line is that that's Donald Trump's position. That's the only challenger to Joe Biden, the Democratic Party's position. That's the position of a bunch of people in Congress. And it's kind of the position that could travel uh, in an election year. So I think that the point is, you should never take for granted this support that, that Joe Biden is going to have to explain all the time why we're doing this and not just yep. assume that everybody agrees that it's a great thing that we're in, in this war through a proxy, that we're arming them. Um, because I, I think that there's you know, more traction out there for that view than, than people might think. I, I do too. And, you know, there, there's another guy in the Republican field named uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a sort of businessman who came out of nowhere, is doing surprisingly well. It's early. So I'm, I don't think he'll necessarily sustain it. But his plan when it comes to Ukraine is to basically end U.S. military support for Ukraine and try to cut the following peace deal, which is to get Russia to agree to end its military alliance with China, withdraw weapons from sort of the Ukraine region, rejoin the START treaty, and then exchange. He just wants to give the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine to the Russians, end uh, Ukraine's effort to join NATO, because I guess he doesn't think partitioning a country has ever ended badly, or he apparently thinks that Putin would actually abide by this agreement over the long term. I mean, but like this guy is getting some traction. Well, and, and to your point, right, th this is the kind of, you know, Vivek uh, and, and, and RFK Jr. are both the kind of guys who swim in the sea of like, uh, 
you know, Elon and David Sachs, you know, the the all in pod. Yeah, little, little right? Joe Rogan. Yeah, little Joe Rogan. Yeah. Little yeah. Joe Rogan flavor. And the thing is actually, those people are incredibly powerful people. Not David Sachs, but like Elon Musk is, you know, an o- audience, yeah. Owns Twitter. Um Jack Dorsey, like these are people with a lot of resources who if they want to push certain content, <laughs> they want to drive certain arguments into the mainstream, like they can do that, you know? Yep. And so I, I just think that, 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 that people, when they talk about Ukraine, are going to have to explain core principles uh, of like why we're doing this, um, because this is going to be a building sentiment. And if the Ukrainians don't get a lot done in this counteroffensive, and if there's more loss of life, then there's another argument of like, well, we should, you know, stop the the killing in Ukraine. We're we're prolonging a war that isn't leading someplace. So I I, I just think it's not that yeah, I agree with those views, argument. but you got to make the argument. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, I Listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. 
Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, If you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. All right, so some troubling news out of Ethiopia, Ben, uh, where the U.S. government is suspending food aid after an investigation found that Ethiopian government officials were stealing food assistance from USAID and the World Food Program and using it to feed the military and then also selling grain to millers uh, in Ethiopia, who then ground into flour and re-exported it to places like Kenya and Somalia. USAID told The Post, uh, after a countrywide review, USAID determined in coordination with the government of Ethiopia that a widespread and coordinated campaign is diverting food assistance. We cannot move forward with distribution of food assistance until reforms are in place. So this is like a hard stop uh, on USAID's work. Ethiopia, as we've talked about before, they've been fighting this horrific civil war for the last two years. The entire Horn of Africa is struggling after five failed rainy seasons, which have led to droughts and failed crops. 20 million people in Ethiopia are on the brink of starvation, and it's the largest recipient of food aid in the world currently. So, you know, USAID did this in phases. They first cut off food aid to the northern part of the country because it was being used to feed rebels uh, up there. But I think this investigation they did basically found diversion of food aid in every area they looked at. Um, The Ethiopian foreign ministry said they're going to work with us on an investigation. But I don't know, like even if this was mostly done by local officials, you got to assume there's pretty serious questions about what Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government knew or allowed to happen or questions about the World Food Program's ability to monitor its own programs. Um, The theft was not at all subtle. The Washington Post pointed out that there was one town in Ethiopia that had two flour mills, despite the fact that there were no wheat fields within 300 miles of these facilities. And there were just bags labeled USAID and World Food Program sitting out in front of them. So like, it didn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure this out. But Ben, you read a story like this, and it's the most demoralizing thing in the world, because like, well-intentioned programs are getting stopped and won't be able to help these people. It's so damaging for people in Ethiopia. It's so damaging for political support for foreign assistance programs when opponents of them can lift up programs like this. It's just like makes you just want to scream. Yeah. And and it could exacerbate, obviously, the near-term food and nutrition issues in Ethiopia. I, I would hope that the goal is to try to find some new mechanism for delivery rather than just kind of pull up stakes. I mean, I understand why USAID took the step they did, obviously. Um, but you really don't want the U.S. to be absented from like the capacity to provide food aid to someplace like that. Um, so hopefully the goal is, can we find some other delivery mechanism? Can they you know, make an example of some local officials? Uh, because if the U.S. is kind of out of that space um, and, and other countries, potentially donor countries, are out of that space, uh, then you're just going to create an even worse situation in terms of not just humanitarian crisis, but it kind of like you know the, the worst actors – uh, are, are are often empowered, you know, by our absence. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, like, my hope is that they can try to work to remedy this and 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 resume, um, recognizing that there's a higher bar now, as there should be, um, because otherwise it, it, it's pretty grim. 
Yeah, it's dire. Um, staying in Eastern Africa, uh, unfortunately, things were getting far worse in Sudan. So back in April, the Sudanese military started fighting with a paramilitary force in Sudan called the Rapid Support Forces or RSF. They had been partners, the, the military and the RSF, uh, following a 2021 military coup that deposed the civilian government, uh, but then they broke out to the civil war. The heaviest fighting started in Khartoum, Sudan's capital, but it is spread to other parts of the country, including the Darfur region, where militia groups are using the power vacuum to you know, take territory, settle old scores, et cetera. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners know that Darfur is, is the place where one of the worst genocides in modern history occurred. That was when Arab militias called the Janjaweed slaughtered mostly non-Arab tribal groups. Many of those Janjaweed militias later became the RSF, so a lot of the same actors here. So you're starting to see activists sound the alarm about uh, fears that the the Darfur genocide is restarting. The governor of Darfur called on citizens to take up arms and defend themselves from attacks from the RSF. Uh, according to Al Jazeera, there's a doctor's association in Darfur compared the intensity of fighting in one city to the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Um, the U.S. and the Saudis have been trying to organize these peace talks and negotiating these sporadic ceasefires, but they seem to quickly get broken. And the to the extent that the ceasefires have worked, it's really seemingly only in in uh, Khartoum, not in the Darfur region. On top of that, Ben, the Sudanese government declared that the head of the UN mission in Sudan was persona non grata. So they're basically booting the guy out of the country. The latest stats are about one and a half million Sudanese people have been internally displaced in the country. Another half million have been forced to leave the country. Uh, half the country of Sudan needs humanitarian assistance. So Ben, this is you know the, the sort of the worst nightmare scenario. I'm starting to see calls for the UN to deploy peacekeepers to Sudan. Previously, there was a joint UN-African Union peacekeeping mission. That mission ended in 2020. Do you think that's the right move? And if so, like, how quickly can something like that happen? Well, I mean, first of all, we're seeing, as you said, the worst case scenario play out because what happens is you have two kind of warlord type figures that decide to fight for control of the country. That can very quickly become zero sum, as we've talked about, because, you know, whoever loses is that's it. They're out. They're, you know, they'll probably be killed or they're certainly never going to any, be anywhere near power. And so then as it becomes zero sum, these guys need every advantage they can get. So then they start stoking, you know, ethnic tensions and, you know, factional tensions and regional tensions because it serves their purposes. Um, they clearly don't care how many people get killed. And so you have this kind of spiral where what starts as a power struggle kind of, you know, they go around lighting every brush fire that they can to their advantage, and you get this kind of uh, killing um, and violence. It's just horrific. I think the, the, the daunting challenge is the geopolitics are much worse today than they were in the past when, you know, peacekeeping missions were authorized. Um, the UN is a shell of itself because the UN Security Council is totally paralyzed by the geopolitical competition between the US and Russia and China. So getting kind of a UN Security Council resolution around anything of any consequence is incredibly complicated. And that would normally be the umbrella for something like a peacekeeping mission or some peace uh, deal. Um, the African Union as the kind of chief regional uh, entity, uh, you'd want to be playing a lead role. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't have the same clout that the UN Security Council once did. And, you know, what countries are going to put peacekeepers in the middle of a civil war like that? And so yeah, I, I think, yeah, ideally, you'd want some UN 
backed peace process for dialogue and ceasefire coupled with the deployment of some peacekeepers. But man, there's a lot working against that right now. I, I think that's a long shot. Yeah, I do too. And look, these are enormous places that these peacekeepers would have to cover. You've got to set a lot of people. Yeah, uh, yeah. And to your point about the geopolitics, I mean, we know that the Russians, you know, like the Wagner group is probably benefiting from some of this instability, you know, extracting more minerals and things from various countries. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's dire. Yeah. Switching gears here, Ben, uh, there was an interesting report in the Wall Street Journal about how North Korean hackers have managed to steal more than $3 billion worth of cryptocurrency in the past five years, and they are using it to fund about half of North Korea's ballistic missile program. Wonderful. Just the solution we were looking for from cryptocurrency. So the the first major crypto heist uh, by the North Koreans started in 2018. There were more than 42 successful attacks identified in 2022, according to the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies. North Korea has, has long been known to have a surprisingly strong sort of cyber force. I say surprising because it's, you know, I don't think you think of them as the most online culture out there or necessarily educated, but North Korea has workers in countries all over the world. Many of them apply for jobs at like crypto companies, they get hired, and then they set up a backdoor for future access or otherwise cause mischief. There was the, uh, they, a bunch of North Korean hackers infected a bunch of hospitals with ransomware a couple of years ago. So these activities have become a critical lifeline for North Korea to get around sanctions. And uh, experts say they have basically shifted most of their cyber operations from traditional espionage to theft. So I don't know. I don't want to, am I being too hard on cryptocurrency here by blaming them? It's North Koreans stealing the stuff, but man, did it make it uh, easier, it seems. Well, if you set up, and, and I know the crypto enthusiasts will you know, not like this, but like if you set up a whole kind of currency mechanism whose chief you know, attribute in your view is that it can evade government regulation, <laughs> uh, guess who's going to move into that space pretty rapidly? Yep. Like what's interesting about North Korea is they've kind of established themselves as like the bottom feeders uh, around global capitalism. So they have a cyber theft capability where they've essentially, you know, trained a bunch of hackers who've like either through ransom attacks or just outright theft have created a source of revenue. Now they're getting in the crypto space. By the way, we should add, this is like a very close first cousin of RFK and, you know, uh, that, that whole set of people, um, you know, the, the, the same people that have theories about, uh, the Ukrainian war are often crypto enthusiasts. That's oh, not yeah. all crypto. You know, there's some great people in crypto. I, I'd want to see. Jack Dorsey changed the name of his company to block yeah, blockchain. Exactly. So. so there's, there's that to it. But I mean, the whole point here is that like, I, I really do think for even the kind of better intentioned, more earnest crypto investors, um, the idea that you're going to have a completely unregulated currency system, the the big countries that don't like that, like the United States and China, for that matter, uh, are going to start building up walls and start prosecuting people, as we've seen with uh, FTX. Um, and, you know, the North Koreas of the world are going to be or the, you know, the guy in El Salvador, Bukele, who's building like, you know, Bitcoin cities. Those are going to be the people that uh, rush into this space. And and, and again, I think that interesting about the North Koreans is they don't need like because they don't care about their own people, like a ton of money. They need, uh, you know, a few billion dollars to sustain nuclear and ballistic missile stuff. And and they're finding ways to do that um, yep. by exploiting these kind of new unregulated kind of Wild West slash tech. I'd, I'd look for what North Korea is going to do with AI, for instance, because AI is a shortcut to having a lot of capabilities. 
you know, you know, their capacity just to kind of hang out and like surf the next wave. <laughs> First it was crypto, then it'll be AI next year. You know, like uh, I think this is going to be part of their model. Yeah, it's uh, not great. Uh, ben, Henry Kissinger might still be alive and we can celebrate him while he's living. But Silvio Berlusconi, <laughs> the former prime minister of Italy, is now dead at 86. He's probably the foreign leader who most resembles Trump, don't yeah. you think? He's sort of like Trump before Trump. Yeah. Self-made. Unlike Trump, he was a self-made a- media actually mogul. Actually successful mogul. Yeah. 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 I mean, he set up like, he figured out TV early. He made massive amounts of money setting up all the TV stations and a bunch of, he had a media empire. He was crass. He was corrupt. He used to host sex parties with prostitutes called bunga bunga parties. Uh, he was later accused of having sex with an underage prostitute, although he was acquitted on those charges. He was convicted of tax fraud in 2012. But despite all these controversies and scandals, uh, Berlusconi was prime minister four different times uh, and a dominant figure in Italian politics for several decades. His politics were kind of center right to right wing. He dabbled a lot with right wing populism. It was more of a cult of personality than anything else. His buddies with Putin. He was recently caught on tape uh, blaming Ukraine for the Russian invasion. Uh, the, the, I think the New York Times, one of the stories about him described his brand of politics as uh, populist buffoonery, which I thought was pretty perfect. And, you know, he was incompetent when it came to economic management. So, Ben, you know, I think in summary, here's like what your your take is on his legacy. He was certainly a, a close U.S. ally in all our biggest mistakes, like the Iraq War. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Libya, some might say. Uh, right wing populist, a real scumbag. But, you know, also <laughs> just a towering, towering yeah. figure in total, Italian politics. Total scumbag. I mean, you know, first of all, his political resilience and, you know, uh, success is helped a lot by the fact that he owned all these television stations, right? So people ask, like, because he he often ran the Italian economy in the ground, and you know yeah. he obviously had these personal scandals. But when you own the TV stations, it'd be almost as if like Rupert Murdoch was also a politician or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the degree of that's good comparison. Of, uh, how much he could like rely on like a mouthpiece for the last twenty years. Um, so that that to me explains his resilience. But in a way, you're right. He's like an innovator. Like he anticipated Trump, right? He was a showman. He attracted attention to himself. He had no shame, right? Like he he was ahead of the curve uh, of what people like Trump figured out or Boris Johnson that if you do not have the capacity to be shamed, you can kind of get away with stuff because, you know, you don't have to apologize and resign because you're like, don't give a shit, right? That's one thing. I am struck by the the U.S.-centric view of Berlusconi. I remember my consciousness of him started around the Iraq war because he was like all in the bush, right? So like- Do you remember when, that debate when, when uh, I think maybe it was John Kerry criticized the war and said the U.S. is going it alone and Bush started yelling like, tell that to Silvio Berlusconi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You remember that? Well, it's the same debate where he's like, you forgot about Poland. You know, right. uh, because like France and Germany had obviously broken the U.S. and Berlusconi like stood by our side. And like it just goes to show that like, you know, Bush, we we don't drag Bush enough sometimes because like, you know, remember he was looking into Putin's soul and he was oh, buddies yeah. with Berlusconi. My memory of Berlusconi that stands out is, Tommy, were you at the G20 in Cannes in France in like 2012? Yes. I believe? Yes. So, at that, uh, that's at the height of what was the Eurozone crisis, which was essentially Greece was like defaulting. Uh, Italy, the Italian economy was following Greece like down a rabbit hole. And there was a concern that, that Italy and Greece were going to literally drag all of Europe into some massive financial crisis and another recession, which would have been existential to like the Obama presidency as well. And what was clear in, in all the meetings that the leaders were having, like Merkel and Obama and all these people, Sarkozy, 
is that there was no solution to this problem unless Silvio Berlusconi resigned as Italian prime minister because he was so incompetent and gave so little of a shit of like making a deal to rescue the Italian economy that like you just couldn't do anything. And there was this kind of massive peer pressure from within Italy and from within Europe and to be like, just step aside and let some technocrat in. And he did actually, like he finally was like, okay, fine. I'll let some technocrat take over, stabilize the European economy. Then he came back, you know? And yeah. and so he was this kind of weird, flexible guy in a way. Cause like, usually if a bunch of people are like, yeah, you need to resign, like you'd fight. But I think Berlusconi knew that he always could come back because of these TV stations. And so I just remember watching him like, Everybody in the room was pissed at him. The entire G20 is like, you are the obstacle to solving this fucking problem. And he just didn't seem to care that much, you know? Just having a good time. Yeah. Just hanging just out. Con- it was in Khan. So can you imagine what kind of parties he was going to while, oh, while can, Angela can... Merkel and Obama are like designing a bailout or package? Like, yeah, know? making spreadsheets. Uh, yeah, was, yeah. That, was that the one where we stayed up uh, literally all night long drinking with some Brits the night before? And halfway through the night, we realized they were all like MI5 and MI6. No. And then I basically went from the bar to the bus to fly to the next event? That was not, um, there, there was, you know, that, that that's not the only time oh, that, was that probably Doville. happened. So <laughs> no, the, yeah, that was in, uh, we, we, that was Dovil. That was a G7 yep, yep. or G8. Gotta um, get my G's wrong. Yeah, that was another G. And let's just say, I, I remember having to fly to that one and attend a meeting with Dmitry Medvedev during which I had the worst hangover I've ever had. And I remember looking across at like so Lavrov. And they all, all the Russians had the same thing over, like they'd all been, like, like everybody was like sweating bullets in this room that was too hot. And I was Smelling like, I'm, vodka. And I'm going to have to like run out of this room. And I'm like, I look at Lavrov. I'm like, I think he's feeling the same way I am. <laughs> that guy full of shame and uh, yeah. drinks from the night before. Yeah. Uh, all right. A couple of quicker things to, to close. Um, uh, in Senegal, violent clashes between police and supporters of a leading opposition figure named Usman Sonko have left at least 23 people dead and 390 people injured, according to Amnesty International. Senegal is known as one of Africa's most stable democracies, but there have been major protests since uh, Sonko was sentenced to two years in prison earlier this month, which will bar him from running in future elections. He was actually facing uh, much more serious charges, specifically rape, but he was not uh, he was not convicted there. Many people are furious at uh, President Macky Sall for the the brutal police response to the protesters. That includes firing live ammo. People are just getting killed indiscriminately. Uh, they're also mad at him about high unemployment and corruption. Human rights groups are also concerned about a, a broader erosion of democratic norms in Senegal, including the arrest of journalists uh, and opposition politicians. So uh, not good. Yeah. What's interesting is Macky Sall came into power as like the democracy candidate backed by civil society. Uh, who was denying like uh, 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 someone with autocratic tendencies from sticking around? He's you know uh, he's he he's got a choice to make. You know there's a uh, about whether to be one of these guys who tries to extend his time in office or whether to back a successor. Um, look, I, you can never measure places against the perfect, but I, I think the important point here is that Senegal has an election upcoming, and it has been along with Ghana like a mainstay of some semblance of of democracy and stability in West Africa. This is the same region where we've seen, you know, uh, coups in places like, you know, Burkina Faso and, and Mali. And and so you really hope that, that that stability holds and they get through this election in a democratic way. Um, and so this is something to watch because it does have an impact not just on Senegal, but like on this wider region 
that had been one of the more, you know, one of the bright spots in terms of democracy. Um, uh, you, you, you hate to see that, you know, go up in flames. So uh, the Senegal election is one to watch here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, also, we have talked many times on the show about the murder of a young woman named Masa Amini by the so-called morality police in Iran. Her murder led to this wave of anti-government protests, uh, a brutal crackdown by the security forces in response. It turns out now Iran is prosecuting two women who simply reported on Masa Amini's story. Nulufar Hamidi and Elahey Mohammadi are journalists. Uh, they have spent eight months in prison before going on trial last week. They were charged with conspiring with foreign intelligence agencies to undermine national security. Those accusations are self-evidently ridiculous. But if convicted, their punishments could be death. Uh, there has been a surge of executions in Iran lately. The Wall Street Journal reported that at least 142 people were executed in May alone, uh, the highest monthly number since 2015. About half of those are, are drug charges, uh, but a lot of them are protesters uh, and people who are just sort of expressing frustration with the government. So awful story, Ben. I'm hoping that you know some more attention on this will lead to some sort of international diplomatic effort to pressure Iran to release them, to at least not use capital punishment. I mean, something to walk this back. Yeah, no, it's it's terrific. And the, the challenge, right, is that we've seen in the aftermath of the breakdown of the Iran nuclear agreement, but then also the obviously most acutely in the aftermath of, of these uh, protests in, in the war in Ukraine, as the Iranians kind of just go all in um, with, with Russia, their capacity to be influenced by, you know, the U.S. has always had some limited capacity, but Europe, um, you know, was a voice that Iran sometimes listened to. It's just harder and harder um, to, to to affect Iranian behavior. And, and the, you know, there's clearly this kind of zero-sum crackdown that's happening in Iran. I think part of what's looking in the backdrop, too, is that, and there have been some reporting about this recently, the Supreme Leader is old, very old. Uh, mm -hmm. He's been in poor health. So there's like succession issues like looming on the horizon. Um, the capacity for Iran to be a very volatile place, uh, you know, it continues to be acute. You would hope that in the in the interim, though, that international attention, international spotlight can at least try to curb some of these excesses um, and, and protect some of these journalists. Um, there's no, you know, what about is in, in the world that could ever justify what's happening. Um, so the point I'm about to make is not at all <laughs> to let Iran off the hook. Um, it would be nice if uh, the U.S. opposed the killing of journalists uh, as a general matter um, in the Middle East. Um, mm. uh, and, and that's harder um, when, you know, the Saudis uh, are buying up, you know, professional golf and hanging out, you know, with, with us after they killed the journalists. So that be good to have that moral authority, too. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, yeah, not great. Uh, not great that Mohammed bin Salman is welcomed back into the fold after that. Although, you know, the Saudis also leading the charge when it comes to executions globally. So another great thing. About yeah, we're country. in that club too, the US. I mean, it's a it, it, it's an argument against the death penalty here. Not that we have to go down that road that uh, yeah. the other countries that utilize it are, are good advertisement for not not doing that. I could not be more opposed to the death penalty. Uh, last thing before Ben's interview, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber yeah. died recently in his jail cell. Uh, thoughts and prayers to all the Harvard grads out there. I know you lost a real one. Did you know that he was subjected to the CIA-backed MKUltra experiments while at Harvard? No, is that true? I had no idea. I saw it mentioned in 
one of the obits I read that linked me to a really long Atlantic piece about him that said that he was there. There's an experiment where these subjects were put under essentially mock interrogations. They had like blinding spotlights. They were verbally abused. And they just like shouted them down uh, about their beliefs and harshly criticized them. There's no evidence that LSD or other substances were used on Ted Kaczynski. That, for those who don't know, MKUltra was this crazy CIA-backed program of like the most famous piece of it was get, you know giving people LSD to see if you could get like truth serums or mind control or just like batshit crazy Cold War thinking. But yeah, the Unabomber was subject to MKUltra-backed experiments while at Harvard. Seems like that one didn't work out. Um, no, I, 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 um, I did go down like the obit rabbit hole with him, and you know what's interesting is if you go back and look at, I mean, first of all, it's extraordinary that the New York Times and Washington Post like literally published this guy's like thirty thousand word manifesto. Um, yeah, why did they do they that? They did it because he said he wouldn't kill anybody anymore if they did, um, uh. and I, and that's true. And actually, the irony of it is the publication of his manifesto is what tipped off his bro- his brother read the right. manifesto and was like, holy shit, that, I think that's my brother. And that's how they got him. That's got to be a tough phone call. But, yeah, but like, if you look at his ideology, right, it's kind of anti-everything, anti-tech, anti you know, like, like today he'd be in like a Twitter space or something, or he'd be in, he'd be in like a 4chan <laughs> yeah. or something. Like he, he's actually like a very recognizable character today um, as this kind of anti-world government, you know, uh, but, um, you know, he was, uh, a man, uh, tragically ahead of his times uh, in some ways. Yeah. And there's, so I guess there is a question of whether these experiments that were done on him sort of aggravated what I think was later diagnosed as schizophrenia. And that led to this behavior where he sent these package bombs, killed three people, injured 23 others, and these completely random, just heinous crimes against people he'd never yeah, met. Hor- horrific. He was. And, and some of them just totally random people married with children. Academics. I mean, yeah. We should always, like, there was a bit of a, like, I guess there's like a boomlet and like people that like look up to him and like, man, uh, d- don't. Don't uh, don't separate yeah. out the crime from what this guy was saying. You're also a fucking idiot if you think he was some sort of genius. It's no, it's, it's what you said. It's like completely yeah. wrote like Twitter Spaces thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's like Twitter Spaces ranting, like you know, in in, in Unabomber form. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's uh, it for us and for the Unabomber. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we come back. You'll hear Ben's interview with the Right Honorable David Lamy. So stick around for that. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen, listen to, two, to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, two more episodes. That's yeah. two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that more brain. More stuff and content in there like, yeah, uh, like you're a foie gras <laughs> Become a member today. Go to crooked.com slash friends now to learn more. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went, 
That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are very, very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World, uh, Member of Parliament for the Labor Party, Shadow Foreign Secretary for Keir Starmer and Labor Party, uh, David Lemmy. David, good to see you again. Good to be here. So, David, we've marked the times of Boris Johnson's ascent and descent um, from his election to his resignation uh, as prime minister. Uh, we had to have you on here um, to discuss the <laughs> the most recent turn of events uh, with Boris stepping down as a member of parliament and some chaos ensuing in the Conservative Party. Why don't we just start with uh, what happened and what is your reaction? Well, your audience will know that Boris Johnson got himself into difficulties because of lying. And the big lies he told was he crafted the rules that governed our behavior during the pandemic. And then it turns out that he was partying with his staff in number 10. But the problem is, in our parliament, there is a clear rule that you must not lie. Sometimes accidentally people speak, um, you know, they misspeak or there's, a, there's an untruth. You correct the record very quickly. Boris Johnson did not do this. Um, there was a catalogue of events and things that he said in parliament that were problematic. So it was then investigated by a uh, what we call a select committee. This is the privileges committee of standards across parliament that look at these issues. It's a cross-party committee of um, uh, parliamentarians. Uh, actually, the majority of the committee are conservatives. It's chaired by a very eminent uh, Labour uh, MP, Harriet Harman. And um, they wrote to Boris Johnson to tell him where they were, where they had got to. It was that that led to him effectively... Um, writing this, crafting this letter that knocked the committee, um, called it a kangaroo court. And I think that's very interesting because I saw that language used by Donald Trump on exactly the same day yeah. in the United States of America uh, and uh, and also uh, attack Rishi Sunak. Why? Because Rishi Sunak on the same day, Boris Johnson has a list of people that he can give honours to. You know, in the UK, you can put people in the House of Lords or you can make them knights uh, or dames. <laughs> and uh, it seems that Rishi Sunak knocked back uh, some of those recommendations 
of Boris Johnson or didn't do quite what Boris Johnson wanted it to do, even though the list was full of cronies and, you know, and, and, and people who were associated with partying and some of the worst aspects of populism um, in this country. So uh, it, it was a day in which he then ultimately resigned and two of his close colleagues who did not appear on that list but expected to, Nadine Doris, uh, and Nigel Adams, Adams also resigned. So we now have three by-election, and this is hugely undermining for Rishi Sunak because he's likely to do very badly in those by-elections, and the Labour Party uh, are likely to do very well. Again, your listeners will have followed um, that we are doing very well in the polls here in the UK, and a lot of people are predicting that Labour is likely to return government at the point at which there's a next general election. So that's a summary of what's gone on. And what is Boris's next play here? Does he have a path back to power, or is he just a chaos agent? Is he just got a vendetta against Rishi Sunak? Like, what, what is he doing with this kind of performative resignation and trying to get his allies to step aside? Is, is this part of a plan or is this just him being Boris? Well, let, let's just deal with the fundamentals first, because let's just look at the populist playbook first. One, there's an undermining of the institution that is parliament. You know, it is actually serious when you have lied, uh, when a panel of your peers have looked into this, it's unprecedented uh, in wrongdoing to undermine a committee of the Parliament of the House of Commons. The cronyism, you know, favouring your own in this way and giving them honours and expecting the new prime minister to do your bidding is, is also deeply, deeply um, flawed and yeah. undemocratic and is all about his judgment. What's his play? Well, his play is he wants to return as leader of the Conservative Party. Um, uh, he expects that Rishi Sunak will not be successful in the next general election. Uh, he wants to probably to get back into Parliament, um, either in one of these seats, we'll see that in the next week play out, or a little bit later on, uh, and to return as probably the leader of the opposition for the Conservative Party. You know, in a way, the opposition plays to him because he's got no responsibility, but then to lead the Conservative Party back to victory, it's, a, it's you know... It's a, it's a playbook that we see in other parts of the world. It's very, very dangerous, very, very worrying. You know, Americans might think he's a clown, but it's it's far more problematic than that. It's And the other thing that I think is a real issue are the enablers. Yeah. The enablers in the Conservative Party that have allowed this to happen and still and still hold up this, this figure that's become so corrosive to British political life. And I say that... Of course, I disagree uh, on policy terms with my Conservative colleagues, but I have huge respect for the Conservative Party as a political force. It has been so depressing to see them moving to the, the far right, really, of the political agenda and taking on this populist mantle. And I think that Boris Johnson is destroying a once great party and certainly the party of Margaret Thatcher, Macmillan and others in the 20th century. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a, a similar play to what we've seen in the Republican Party here. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but that's interesting. I mean, essentially, like maybe let Rishi Sunak take the take the L, as we'd say here in the United States, take the loss to labor and then come back as a, as a leader. I do want to ask you, like there, you've got dominoes falling all around you, David, um, uh, a friendlier party uh, in terms of ideology uh, on some issues, obviously not all issues, um, has been the Scottish Nationalist Party, the SNP. Um, we, we awoke to the news that, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the 
former leader, former guest on this podcast, was was arrested um, in a in a payment scandal, a kind of corruption scandal. That doesn't necessarily mean she's being charged in the context of U- UK law, but what is go- what is going on in the SNP? Um, and and for our listeners, you know, Labour often is sometimes competing for votes um, in Scotland with the SNP. Um, what what does this mean for the SNP, and what does it mean for kind of your strategy heading into an election where? You know, you, you you have been competing with that party over the years for kind of a working class vote in Scotland. Well, look, I mean, for too long, and your listeners may not have appreciated this, but there's been a culture of secrecy and cover up that's been allowed to fester at the heart of the Scottish Nationalist Party. And I think this is now coming home to roost. And, um, you know, it's it's very sad to see the situation that Nicola Sturgeon uh, and her um, husband find themselves in in relation to the finances of that party and loans made uh, to that party and whether rules have been broken. Now, there's an ongoing police investigation, so I I can't get into the weeds on that, except to say that uh, clearly... um, uh, it does present the British Labour Party with an opportunity um, in Scotland um, um, under our leadership of uh, Anna Sawa uh, and a revival in Scotland, because it means that the debate now moves beyond just the question of in, in independence. Uh, the Labour Party is a party that believes in the union and people start to focus on public services in Scotland. They start to focus on the real issues. Hang on a minute. What are the SNP doing about cost of living? What are they doing about um, health? What are they doing about education? You know, are these guys in it for themselves? Are, are some of the questions that are being asked um, in Scotland, and that presents the Labour Party with an opportunity. Now, I don't want to say it's any more than an opportunity because we, you know, we have to be clear on our offer to the Scottish electorate. But you know. You do need a bit of luck um, sometimes uh, in <laughs> politics. You need fortune to come your way. I've looked at the polls more recently um, in Scotland, and it looks like the same revival that we're seeing here in England is being replicated in Scotland. And we could be on course to win um, between 12 and 20 seats, which would be a huge revival uh, of our, our fortunes. And, and a lot of people said that it would be very hard for us to get over the line and walk into number 10 if we did not see votes pick up in Scotland. Uh, And we now have the opportunity for that to happen. Uh, And I think good leadership in Scotland means that um, things are looking brighter than they've looked for some time. So one more British political question here, because part of what's interesting here is uh, for for people who have listened to this podcast for a while, like, you know, the SNP and the Tories are very different in a lot of ways. SNP has been more progressive on a bunch of issues. But one common thread you mentioned kind of political potential political corruption we should say because it's not as if Boris Johnson didn't have some scandals around dark money payments and things like that but also nationalism and populism right i mean uh, yeah. you know SNP yeah. is fundamentally a nationalist movement kind of a populist nationalist movement so even though it's uh, more uh, on the the this the left side of the equation it's it, it has some of that dna you've called for a general election right away rishi sunak is unlikely to do that there will be an election no later than kind of the end of next year. We see Rishi Sunak, he was just in the US uh, with President Biden. We see him really trying to present himself 
as this kind of technocratic statesman, you know, who's resolving, making agreements, and he's hosting summits on AI, and he's, you know, hugging Zelensky. Um, what do you guys need to do to close the deal here <laughs> over the next year to take that contrast that you already have on nationalism and populism and corruption and turn it into like a governing majority? Well, look, let me just take the first point. And this is to say that we are up against, as progressives, the politics of division, um, the nativism uh, of populism, often playing to the worst uh, instincts of humanity that divide us, don't bring us together. Um, uh, what I see in Joe Biden when I look uh, um, from across the Atlantic is an attempt to bring a nation together in hugely divisive times. And I hope that the Labour Party presents that opportunity um, as well. What do we have to do? Well, you know, we have to answer the vision question. In, in British politics, what can happen when a political party comes out too early with its kind of its its policy offer, its manifesto, is that your political opponents, if they're clever, steal some of your clothes. Hmm. So we're now going into the cycle where we lay that out very clearly. Certainly, by the time we get to our uh, conference season, which is a bit like a convention, uh, and we'll have that in October of this year, so that the country are very clear on what Labour's offer is. Um, and that's for us, it's the key domestic issues. What are we saying about inflation and cost of living? Uh, inflation here is running at 8.7%. What are we saying about uh, public services? Key there is health uh, and education. Childcare is a very big issue on the doorstep here in the UK. We have to have a good offer uh, on childcare, particularly. Uh, and crime, crime is rising. Uh, there is concern about antisocial behavior in neighborhoods. We also have to be very clear in those key domestic portfolio um, areas. And, uh, and, and then by the election, people, you know, it's almost like that pledge card. People have got to know the four or five things that you were saying. Um, uh, Keir Starmer, uh, no one thought, frankly, after the loss in 2019, the worst defeat for the Labour Party since 1935, no one thought three years later that we would be in this position. So credit to Keir Starmer uh, for getting us into this. I mean, I cautioned Keir Starmer that maybe we should have a 10-year plan yeah. Um, yeah. because, you know, five years was pretty ambitious. Uh, but he has got us back into the game. And now we've just got to seal the deal. Yeah. No, I remember you came on after that that uh, victory and you said, you know, hopefully you can be done in five years, but it might be 10. But uh, it seems like the... The timetable is maybe moving fast. Well, one more question for you, David. Uh, since the theme of this uh, podcast interview seems to be crimes, misdemeanors, and, and lies, um, <laughs> Donald Trump is, uh, you know, presenting himself in a Miami courthouse as we speak. This is a, you know, uh, not to diminish the New York uh, indictment, uh, but this is kind of a far more serious charge because it touches on national security. Um, we know from the indictment it touches on the Iranian war plan. Um, uh, what is the view of this uh, latest turn in Donald Trump's uh, in American politics from abroad? Because uh, on the one hand, I could see 
well, this is justice working and this shows that there's still like a, a legal system in the U.S. that can take on someone with the political power of Trump. But also it also could be seen as kind of the chaos of American politics, the strangeness of it, Trump's kind of resilience uh, that he's still the Republican frontrunner despite this. And frankly, the national security concern of like, hey, can we trust the United States with our secrets? I mean, one of the documents that was reported in the indictment was – shareable only with the UK and New Zealand and Australia. So you guys are, are in on this. Um, how does this look from London? Well, look, let me just say, and, you know, I was in the um, Indo-Pacific just a couple of weeks ago. I was in Singapore for the Shangri-La conference. All of the globe is looking carefully at what's happening in the United States. Um, we worry about um, a different political view is is part of a healthy democracy, but um, huge, deep divides, uh, I think, are very problematic. I think if the United States were to move into an isolationist position where it um, is hostile to NATO, uh, and we did see that before under the Donald Trump presidency, um, where it, the debates are so internal that it sort of departs almost from the international stage. Uh, I think that that is incredibly dangerous. And we have huge um, geopolitical forces that could capitalize on that. And I'm thinking of Russia, Iran, uh, China. Uh, I'm thinking of what Putin's thinking at this time as he looks closely at what's happening in the United States. Uh, obviously, um, I'm in the you know, I'm shadow foreign secretary. Um, the, the Britain has a has a historic special relationship with the United States where part of the Five Eyes intelligence system, the, some of the best intelligence capability in the world, um, sensitive documents, um, uh, you know, put, put good people in harm's way uh, and must never, ever fall into the hands of uh, of those who would do us harm. So the issues here um, are, are not knock-around issues. These are very, very serious um, issues indeed. And we will follow very closely what, what happens. As you know, the, the relationship that we have with the uh, USA really goes way beyond who is in the White House um, because of you know how how close really um, our military and uh, our intelligence, particularly, um, and our and our historic cultural ties. But the world is in a very very challenging geopolitical moment, and we need calm heads. And um, it's been it's been it's been worrying to watch the extremes uh, of of political flavor really enter. The U.S. political scene, and um, you know, and I, uh, you know, that the justice stuff has to play out, and I can't comment on how the justice system moves forward in the United States, but 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 I can see that there's quite a lot of rancor um, uh, in America, and that does worry me because I'm a I'm a you know I, yeah. I, I I love the United States of America. <laughs> yeah, no, it's well said. I mean, you uh, if you guys get in, uh, presumably next year, you will have a five-year window dealing with, as you and I have talked about kind of offline, you know, Ukraine, China, uh, AI, all these issues. Um, 
I'll say it. You don't have to say it. It'll be easier for you to deal with those issues if uh, if we have a kind of rational, competent uh, administration. Um, but look, David, it's been great talking to you. Maybe we'll uh, we'll check in with you after the around the party conference to see your part of that agenda um, and uh, continue to to you know uh, be very uh, impressed by how you guys have positioned labor uh, heading into an election year. So uh, thanks uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. And we should just say, despite the doom and gloom. Both of these stories do also remind us that, yes, there are some populist tides in both of our countries, but there are also hugely important democratic checks and balances. And that's what I always remind people who are looking at these issues from afar. Keep an eye on the checks and balances that exist, because in the end, um, you know, that's what the people... Um, in Ukraine are fighting for, to have that kind of deep democracy. And I know that the United States is still writing that story. And we, too, in the UK are doing the same thing. Yeah, no, it's good. It's a great point, because uh, these types of leaders in countries without those checks and balances, uh, it'd be be a little more complicated. So it's a good good note to end on. Uh, All right. Thanks, David. Good to see you. Great. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks again to David Lamy for joining the show. Uh, thanks again to Boris Johnson for resigning. Yeah. I, w- I wish we had some champagne. I was just sitting in the studio with you. We did pour one out for him, but next I time. mean, you know, he's, you know, Trump, Boris, like we're working through them. Uh, we've got some other ones. But, uh, Silvio. Uh, uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> Silvio. Like I, um, uh, yeah, thanks to Hillary Clinton for like a uh, like a penetrating insight about Bobby. There we Clinton. go. Yeah. There we go. Uh, all right. Talk to you guys next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. 